This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, Old Sports, and welcome to another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, one of your co-hosts, and we'd like to thank you for once again listening to the Hello, Old Sports podcast. Before we begin, I'd like to remind you to please subscribe to Hello Old Sports on your podcast app of choice. Uh, give us a nice five star rating if you like what I he- like what you hear. You can also contact the show at Hello Old Sports Podcast. I'm sorry, Hello Old Sports at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at Hello Old Sports Podcast and. If you have any ideas, thoughts, questions, anything, we well, would love to hear from you. We got plenty of ideas for new shows and new episodes, but we're always loved. We always love to hear from our fans and uh, with any ideas or thoughts or suggestions or anything like that that you might have. I am joined as always by my co-host Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing tonight? I am doing well, Dan. This is uh, actually my first episode recording uh, in my new um, apartment. I moved in the last week or two weeks, you know, kind of a a rolling process. So this is our first podcast recording uh, that I've done since moving. Um, I did my other show yesterday and didn't get any complaints by way of loud bangs at the door. So I'm going to hope that tonight is uh, more of the same. I'm going to try and keep my voice down a little bit more than maybe is natural for me. But, um, you know, I think uh, I think I'm in the clear. I think, um, you know, it's early enough and uh, and the um, noise level has been pretty quiet. I don't hear my neighbors, so I'm assuming they don't hear me. <laughs> So uh, we did an episode, uh, we recorded an episode a couple of weeks ago uh, to coincide with the 50th anniversary of the 1972-1973 Knicks NBA championship team. And that episode will probably air, uh, you know, a little bit before, a little bit after this one does. And so we decided for this episode at the suggestion of our special guest, who we'll introduce in a moment here, we decided to move it up 10 years and go back 40 years to the 1982-83 Philadelphia 76ers, much as the 73 Knicks were the last Knicks team to win a championship. This is the last Philadelphia 76ers team to win a championship. And Andrew, maybe you'd like to introduce our guest. Sure. So we are uh, fortunate enough to be joined by our father. Um, I mean, our father, literally not in the we're not beginning to pray or anything like that. Um, We are joined by uh, both myself and Dan's father, Glenn, who uh, grew up in the first 15 years of his life in the Philadelphia area and has some very fond memories of this team. Dad, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me, guys. No, we're uh, we're glad to do it. It was your idea, so we definitely wanted to uh, to have you as well. I guess Dan was technically alive, but um, as the only one who was actually alive, you know, and sentient for the first uh, for this season, that uh, we could definitely get some added perspective from you. Okay, yeah, no, he was only six months old, so (laughs) I was about the age now that my then that my son is now, and. uh, 
despite all of the screaming of the last two days, I don't think my son will remember the 2023 NBA finals. So yeah, a little, little well, early. He definitely won't have any, he definitely won't have any memories of a Celtics championship. No, no, no. And that was, uh, <laughs> we're recording this after, a. The, the night after a uh, very, uh, very rough performance by the Celtics in uh, in 1980 in, in game seven of the Eastern Conference finals against the Miami Heat. So uh, I guess, Dad, why don't we start it off and just uh, you give us sort of your, your general sort of thoughts, memories, what have you on this team? Um, I again, it's 40 years ago, so I don't remember as much as I used to. But this was the culmination of being a fan for a good long time. I mean, I moved away from Pennsylvania, from the Philly area when I was 14, which was 1969. I think the last year or two I lived there, I was a Sixers fan. I really started getting into basketball when I was like 12. Um, so their 67 championship team. I mean, I, I, I remember that it happened, but I can't say that I was a, a big fan. I, I got into it after that. So I, I suffered through the early seventies and obviously the catastrophic year where I think they were nine and 73, which I believe is still the worst year ever of, of an NBA team. So when they got better in the mid-70s, I know when George McGinnis came to the team and he joined some of the other cast of characters, it gave us some hope. And then obviously, I was very aware of Julius Irving because we had moved to New York and I used to see the Nets on television. So, you know, if, if you saw Julius Irving back in that period when he was on the Nets, I mean, he was just... He was unbelievable. There was just no way to describe him. So when the Sixers got him for, uh, you know, when when he got there and I guess it was what for the 76, 77 season, Mm -hmm. I was thrilled and I suffered through their championship losses in 77, 80, 82. And when I was looking all this up, I I had totally forgotten 81. They lost the Eastern Conference Championship to the Celtics, I think, in seven games that year. So when 82, 83 came around and they got Moses Malone, it was the same type of feeling as when they got Julius Irving. It's like, okay, now we've really got a chance. And although I had been living in New York for 13, 14 years, I think I followed them as best as I could. I saw them on TV. I read about them. Um, I was still a big-time 76ers fan at that time. So that that that's my memories. The other thing you got to remember is is I moved to New York in '69, and not only did the '76ers get historically bad, I had to live with the Knicks winning championships. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it was, well, uh, and the rest of us we've had to live without the Knicks winning championships. So, <laughs> um, so real quick, Bob, uh, before I turn it back to you, Andrew, 2011-2012 uh, season, the Charlotte Bobcats in a lockout stri- uh, shortened year were 7-59 and for a 106 winning percentage. The, the, the Sixers of 72-73 were 9-73 and for a 110 winning percentage. And for those of you Sixer fan out there following you, you, you got a close third, too, because only one win better at 10 and 72 in the 2015, 2016 season was also the Philadelphia 76ers. So two of the three worst teams of all time, single season teams are Philadelphia 76ers teams. 
<laughs> so yeah, so we really cherished that one championship <laughs> one in '83. So, so just by way of sort of a brief history, and we touched on it a little bit. The um, the Sixers were originally the Syracuse Nationals. Uh, the original Philadelphia. NBA team was the Philadelphia Warriors, who still exist today as the Golden State Warriors. Um, after they left in the early 60s, I think there was no Philly NBA team for about a year. And then the Syracuse Nationals, this was in the era of, for a long time, a lot of the NBA teams were in places like Syracuse and Rochester that, you know, it's amazing they ever had a professional team. So they moved to Philadelphia. They become the 76ers in 1963. Uh, in 1967, with Wilt Chamberlain, they win the title. We talked about they bottom out in a big way in the early 70s. They have that 9-73 and 73 team. Um, and I think the place we really touch on, and Dan, correct, I think the place that makes sense to start all of this is with the ABA-NBA merger uh, in 1976, and what happens there is the ABA accepts four teams into the NBA, the Spurs, the Nuggets, the Pacers, and the New York Nets. The Nets are forced to pay a territorial fee to the Knicks, uh, and the Knicks are really looking to spank them because they're encroaching on their turf. In lieu of paying a territorial fee they really couldn't afford, the Nets offered to give the Knicks Julius Irving, who'd been the best player in the ABA, started with the Virginia Squires, but was really synonymous with the ABA and the Nets and was sort of the big get from a player standpoint in this merger. The Knicks, uh, I guess, would rather have the money in a move that would come back to haunt them. They decline on that. And the Sixers or the Nets are forced to go elsewhere. And that's where the Philadelphia 76ers come in. And, and the one thing I would add is, is, and again, being 50 years ago, as I recall, he wasn't just the prize. He was pretty much the driving force between the merger of the two leagues. He was such a huge, huge star. They wanted to get him in the NBA. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He was not, this was not an AFL NFL situation where the whole league was seen as a competition. If Dr. J is not in the ABA, there's probably real. The, the, first of all, the league is half out of business. Andrew mentioned that they took four teams. I think there were only five that were even viably still in business by the end of their last season. This is not sort of like the AFL or even going back to the turn of the century, the American League where these teams, you know, the league was getting stronger. The ABA was getting progressively weaker business-wise. And so you're exactly right. If, if no Dr. J, then there's not really any real impetus for the merger. And then what happens is, is as you mentioned, they go on a string of finals or postseason disappointments. They go up 2-0 against Bill Walton and the Blazers. In, this is in Dr. Uh, J. First year with Philly, and yep. he was traded before the season started, just by way of uh, you know explanation. I guess the Nets were actually about to start their first game in the NBA on the West Coast when they found out that Irving had officially been traded in October. Incidentally, if you're a Dr. J fan, or if you're interested in learning more about Dr. J, there's a really interesting story from sometime in the 70s where 
he left his ABA team, which I think was the Nets at the time, and just started playing with the Atlanta Hawks in the preseason until the the, the NBA or the ABA, I think, uh, took some legal remedies to put a stop to that. But if you look online, there are pictures of Dr. J playing in a preseason game in an Atlanta Hawks uniform. So very weird times in, in professional basketball in the 70s. But yeah, they lose to the they go up 2-0 to the uh the Blazers in the 77 NBA finals. They lose that series in six. And that's that's sort of what's considered like sort of like the highlight real team because that's not just Dr. J, that's George McGinnis, that's Daryl Dawkins, that's all of those guys. And then they, you know, a couple couple of slower years, and then in 80. They go. They're back in the finals to the Magic Johnson uh, rookie year Lakers. Lose that one in six. Following year in '81, they lose an epic, epic game seven at the Boston Garden to the Larry Bird Celtics, and that's McHale's rookie year and Parrish's first year with the team. '82, they're back. They actually beat Boston in seven games in the conference finals in '82, and they go. They lose again to the Lakers in the '82. NBA finals, they get out rebounded by um by a uh, 44 rebounds, uh 34 rebounds rather in the 1982 NBA finals. So going in to the 82-83 season, they realize that what they really need is to beef up the front line and they want a center to compete with Abdul Jabbar in the NBA finals. So uh, coincidentally, while all this is going on, and by the way, that 81 Eastern Conference Finals is uh, considered by a lot of people to be like one of the greatest playoff series ever. The Sixers are up three to one. The Celtics win games five, six and seven. It's a almost every game is decided by like two points or three points. I think five of the seven games are one possession games. Um, So coincidentally, while this is all going on in 1982, you know, as the off season of 1982 begins, the Houston Rockets uh, are in a contract dispute with the MVP of the league, the reigning MVP of the league, Moses Malone. Um, Houston had not played particularly well in 1982 after being in the finals the year before that. Um, and, Malone signs as a restricted free agent. He signs. And this, I think I honestly didn't know this. I had to learn about this. They didn't voluntarily trade Moses Malone. Moses Malone was a restricted free agent. He signed a big offer sheet with the Sixers. And because of that, this Rockets did a sign and trade with him so that they could at least get something back. They get Caldwell Jones and, rights to the third overall pick in the draft in 1983, uh, which ended up being Rodney McCray. So. What I had read recently is that the Sixers structured the contract in such a way that it would be very difficult for the Rockets to match it, which was the point that you just made. They were forced into trading him to, uh, to Philly. Yeah, I have a very, very good. I'm trying to find the link. It's an oral history from Philadelphia magazine about 20 years or about five, six years ago. Actually, no, it was just a month ago. Um, 
written about the team. And I guess the big thing for Moses Malone was he didn't want any of the contract deferred. And in Moses's um, unique style of speaking, which we're definitely going to get into in a little a little while later with a famous quote, he just kept telling his agent, no furred, no furred, <laughs> meaning he didn't want any of the money deferred. And the Sixers were willing to concede that point and uh, you know, agreed to a contract with no deferred money that added uh, Moses Malone, the reigning MVP, to a team with not just Dr. J, but also Maurice Cheeks and Andrew Tony, who I think is a guy who gets lost in a lot of this in terms of just how great a player he was for a brief period of time, too. Yes, absolutely. And and one other thing about the team from 80, uh, 81 to 82, um, not only did they trade Caldwell Jones, but they traded Daryl Dawkins. They got rid of Steve Nix, although he wasn't an all-star and he wasn't really a key contributor anymore. He had been a mainstay of the team, Lionel Hollins. They turned over, you know, those four guys were integral parts of previous Sixers teams. So there was some real mixed feelings on the guys who were still there, especially, I think, towards Caldwell Jones, because he was just, uh, they all loved him. He was just a lunch pail kind of guy, but Hey, when you could get Moses Malone, something's got to go. And it was Caldwell. And it was the second year they had the team had been sold in July of 1981. So just a year before that, Howard Cat or Harold Katz had bought the team. So he's obviously and uh, talk about a different time. His quote is basically, I bought the team to be the owner when they won a championship. I wasn't worried about the money. Now, a lot of guys say that now, but I don't think they believe it. You get the sense in this case that he realized that he could, you know, be the owner of a, of a team that won a championship. And he was uh, willing to spend what at the time was considered really an astronomical amount of money to bring Moses in. Yep, that's true. One thing that I noticed that I was reading up on before, you know, as I was prepping here, they actually almost signed Bob McAdoo in the post, the, um, the before this 82 83 season dad i don't know if you have any memories of that but McAdoo, who had been an mvp with the buffalo braves in the 70s and then had been with the lakers he ends up resigning with the lakers but i guess he almost signed with philly in the offseason so that was almost another former a third former mvp that they had on the team i don't know why exactly that didn't happen i think he just decided he wanted to stay with the lakers but that would have been interesting if they'd been added been able to add bob mcadoo to the irving moses malone front line yeah especially when you like you said i mean he was uh he was a pretty big part of those laker teams that won those couple of championships i i don't know how many he was on but i i think it was two so yeah i think i don't he was not there in 80 i don't believe the first team but i think he was there in 82 and he was there in 85 when they beat Boston. And then I think he retired after that. So that would have been, but you mentioned they, you know, they had cheeks and they had Tony. And so this is an established team and Moses kind of puts them over the edge. There's an article uh, in the sporting news from the uh, right as the season was starting. It's their, um, it's their sort of NBA preview issue. And the, the headline is 76ers loaded. Could they win 70? So even though this was not a team that had won championships before, they everybody kind of is looking at them as the odds on favorite to win, to go all the way and to maybe even 
set records. And we'll talk probably towards the end about what the aftermath of this season, but in a weird way, they're kind of like the 85 bears. They're like one of these teams that comes along, they dominate for one season. They're one of the best single season teams. Don Nelson later calls them the best team he's seen in 10 years after his bucks lose to them in the Eastern conference finals. This is not a team that came out of nowhere bringing in Moses. Everybody knew they were going to be really, really, really good. Yep. And I, I just, I wanted to be prepared for this. I didn't want, want to embarrass myself. So I went and I got a book and it's called Tales from the Philadelphia 76ers Locker Room. And it's all about the season, but mm-hmm. it gives you a lot, got a, little, a lot of information from prior. And then obviously what happened after the championship year. But at one point that I had kind of forgot was after they lost to Portland, I guess they said, we owe you one. So that became their marketing slogan. And then obviously, then it became, we owe you two, we owe you three, we owe you four. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the, you know, the media in, in Philly would, would constantly harp on that. Cause I think after they lost in 82 to the Lakers, it was up to, we owe you four. And that what Andrew said about Harold Katz coming in, he was determined he was going to get them a championship and, you know, stop that. We owe you however many. So I think we should also note, talk a little bit about the coach because Billy Cunningham had joined the team right after that 70, I guess right after that 77 finals, because Gene Shu was the coach of the team in 77. I don't know what exactly it was that caused him to leave and caused Billy Cunningham to take over. But Cunningham was a guy who'd been a player, been a player with the Sixers, had won the been on a member of that 67 team, the only team that ever previously in Philly had won a championship for the for the Sixers. So they've got a coach who's very steeped in that Sixer tradition as well. Yep. Yep. And I don't I, when I read this book and I was trying to remember, I don't know if he was that interested in being a coach, to tell you the truth. But I think they appealed to him. He took the job. And obviously, he had the history with the team. So, you know, everybody was going to give him the benefit of the doubt. But, yeah, no, he he was a big part of the 67 team. I think he was the sixth man of the year, you know, back before there was a lot of hype about six men. I know, obviously, John Havlicek was the most famous of them. But, uh, yeah, he he was a big part of that team. So – the starting lineup is the four guys we mentioned, Cheeks, Tony, Irving, Moses Malone, and then Mark Ivoroni, who I believe this was his first year in the league after being in the Italian league. Yeah, he was. Uh, like, yeah, he was. He, he picked around Europe for a couple of years. And then I have listed just as sort of key bench players. You got Bobby Jones, Clint Richardson, and Frank Edwards seem to be the guys who had the most minutes per game coming off the bench to sort of the the top eight. Now they a lot of guys averaged a lot of minutes, and that's probably or you know, at least some minutes, and that's probably because they were up 30 so many times that they were able to go deeper into their bench. But that was kind of, you know, the what seemed to be the top eight in terms of minutes. Yeah, the the two key reserves were obviously Bobby Jones and Clint Richardson, and they would come in and they were both really, really good defensive players. And then they traded for uh, Clement Johnson at the mm. at the trade deadline, and that was another another key another yep. key piece in the machine. It was trade deadline accusation ac- acquisition in February. Yep. 
That's I, true. I, so I Go I ahead. want to talk a little bit about the starting lineup real quick because I had seen this years ago when I was watching the 83 finals uh, video, highlight video, and I, I watched it again yesterday in preparation. Uh, it was So it was Cheeks, it was Moses, it was Dr. J, Tony, and Ivoroni. And, and there was, do I, do either of you, are you familiar with the shirt? No. What? No, I don't think so. There's a guy, and I'd seen this before, and you can look it up online, you can find it. It's a guy who had a shirt and they're interviewing him outside the spectrum. And it said, little Mo, big Mo, the doctor, Andrew, Tony, and Ivoroni. And on the back, <laughs> and on the back, it said, no baloney. <laughs> I, I looked it up. I think you can actually still buy one of those shirts. Yeah. That was, oh, I'm sure, I'm sure now somebody's remade it. It's like, you see the, um, was it Dave Parker who wore the shirt that said like, if you hear any noise, it's just me and the boys bopping or something like that. And now a bunch of baseball players wear that wear that shirt in like the locker room stuff that was probably just like a one off at the mall or something. Now, guys, you know, there's like a market for that kind of thing. So, yeah, you can I, I'm looking up to see if I can find the shirt here, but it's definitely it, it's it's sort of one of these famous. You see somebody like we'll put it on Twitter every once in a while, like so, they'll they'll just put that clip on. So while you're looking that up and I, this Philly magazine article, and I'll actually send it to you guys too, just to read, you know, later on was by, it was from about a month ago or two months ago. Now it was by Pete Croato, C-R-O-A-T-T-O. And it's um, basically, I'll just read the lead really quick. It says Philadelphia's status as a tortured sports city isn't a permanent designation. Zoom past the days of Connie Mack break before the Philly special, turn off the notifications this city has known the bliss of an ass-kicking team. 40 years ago this month, the 76ers crushed the opposition en route to a 65-17 and 17 record in the NBA championship. There were no struggles, no controversies, no heartaches. It was beautiful. So, you know, that's why I think there's not a lot of... It's not a... Uh, there's not a lot of stories in season about conflicts or rivalries or whatever you get the sense that they all knew they had a good thing going and that it was a uh you know all of their best chance to win a championship so nobody was really looking to uh stir the pot or create any problems necessarily and they didn't need to because they were winning every night and i i think moses and what i was reading in this book was is when moses came he was very very cognizant of the fact that it was uh Dr. J's team. And he wasn't looking to supplant him as the star of the team. He just wanted to come and do what he did. But if, like you said, he was the reigning MVP and I think he had won it two times in like three years. He, and he, he knew he was the missing piece, but he was, you know, Hey, Dr. J is the face of the team. And obviously cheeks and Tony, um, you know, he just wanted to do what he did. And he didn't, like you said, nobody upset the apple cart that year. And I think that his legacy gets sort of forgotten because he lingered for so long after this. He was with Philly for a couple of years more. And then, I mean, Moses Malone played until like the mid 90s. He was in Washington. He was in Atlanta. He was in San Antonio. I think he was back, back in Philly with John Bradley <laughs> back in Philly. And then I. Whatever team he closed his career out with in the mid nineties, I don't, I might've been Milwaukee or something. He hit a three quarter court shot in his very last game 
which is it's sort of interesting. But he 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 was kind of like by that point, he was sort of like this old doddering guy playing six minutes a game, if that. And so I think you forget sort of in his Houston days and then in those couple years with Philly, just how dominant of a player he was. And it's really sort of in the uh, at least until the LeBron years, it's really sort of unprecedented in the NBA. I guess Durant, too, is another one who's done it. But and Wilt at, at times. But, you know, Wilt was his own sort of thing. Like it didn't tend to happen a lot in the NBA where a guy of that MVP caliber would join another team in an effort to win a championship. He's pretty, probably the first, maybe the second, if you want to count Wilt. So having, this is like, this is a league altering move to having him sign with the Sixers. Oh yeah. And it, 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 what you said about LeBron, I mean, the correlation there is right out of high school, you know, obviously it was the ABA, but he came right out of high school and went to the ABA, started making his mark. And then when he got to Houston, he was an MVP a couple of times. And they were not a good team, the Rockets. He, the only reason they got anywhere near the championship finals that year was because of him. He was recruited by Lefty Drizel at the University of Maryland. And Drizel brought him to campus and was sort of giving him his whole spiel about how here's Here's why you should come here, et cetera, et cetera. And at one point, uh, Moses just looks at him and says, stop jiving me, coach. And that was the <laughs> end. That was the end of the recruiting trip. And uh, so much for uh, so much for uh, Moses Malone as a D.C. area basketball star. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess. Um, is there anything, Andrew, for other than we talked a little bit about the trade for Clement Johnson? Uh, the regular season is really sort of uneventful. Yeah, they um, they're. Just as a reference point, they're twenty-five and seven on uh, on New Year's. Or excuse me, they're twenty-five and five on New Year's Day. So just to show you the kind of start they got off to, um, they at one point had a eleven. They had a fourteen-game win streak that spanned from December twenty-first, uh, nineteen eighty-two, Tuesday night, December twenty-first, nineteen eighty-two. My my previously discussed birthday. And they actually beat the Celtics that night. And that lasted until Friday, January 21st, 1983. So exactly a month. They had a 14 game win streak. They also had win streaks of 10, six. Um, and there's really, I mean, I think there was once maybe they lost back to back games, but yeah, really no, no real competition to speak of in the regular season. They, they cruise to the, the number one seed, but you know, I think everybody realizes, even though it was still the early 80s, there was going to be two teams they had to concern themselves with. And that was going to be the Celtics and it was going to be the Lakers. Um, you know, they played the Lakers, what, two of the last three years in the uh, in the NBA finals. The West was really unlikely to provide them much competition, if you think about that. Um, so... It's also it's the first year of oh and I just want to mention the the all four of those guys were all stars um, Moses uh, Cheeks and Irving were all starters and then Andrew Tony was a reserve on the all star team and Billy Cunningham was the coach obviously because they had the best record in the league um, so going into I, I also should note that Billy Cunningham 
wins his 300th game in this 82-83 season. That makes him the fastest coach in NBA history, at least to date, to get to 300 wins. I don't know if somebody has surpassed it since, but at the time he was the fastest coach in the, you know, 38 or whatever it was, your history of the NBA to, to get to 300 wins. So this, the 83 playoffs are, are the first year, um, or excuse me, they're the last year rather of a 12 team playoff. I believe the next year they went up to a 16 team playoff, um, sort of indicative of the growth of the NBA. But what that means for the Sixers is they get a buy in the first round. They are the number one seed. They will play the winner of the number four, number five seed matchup. So the famous quote, and I guess there's been some controversy about exactly what he meant by this, whether he was saying that's what it would take or that's what was going to happen. But they asked Moses about, you know, his thoughts on the playoffs and very famously, and this is when I was in college in Philadelphia, they were the, I was in school in Philadelphia from uh, August of 04 until May of 08. At that point, they were the last team that had won a championship in Philadelphia in one of the four major pro sports that following October, a couple months after I graduated, the Phillies would win the world series. And since then the Eagles have won a super bowl. But at that time, the 83 Sixers were the last team that had won a championship and they were referred to by Moses's quote, which was when they asked him about the playoffs and he said, foe, 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 meaning four, four, four that they were going to sweep all three series or that they needed to win four games in each series, depending on who you asked. But uh, since they almost did it, the earlier quote, I think is the, uh, the one that history has stuck with. (laughs) And they go into the first round of the finals against the Bernard King led New York Knicks. I'm sorry. The first round of the playoffs against the Bernard King led New York Knicks. Yeah, and the Knicks don't, you know, put up any kind of a fight, which is going to be a recurring theme here. The um, Sixers win each game, you know, not in comically large fashion. Actually, the two games at the Garden are both two point or are both one possession games. They or actually was there a three point line in the NBA by then? Yes, right. Yeah, seventy nine eighty was the first year. All right, so they they win. The first two games in Philadelphia by 10, Moses goes for 38 and 17 in game one. In game two, he goes for 30 and 17. Game three, they win. Uh, Moses goes, they win by two at the Garden. Moses goes for 28 and 14. And then in game four, 29 and 14 for Moses. So he was, point total in those four games was 38, 30, 28, 29 rebound total was 17, 17, 14, 14. So uh, quite the stat line in that first round for Moses up against a team that uh, as good as Bernard King was, was not, uh, you know, that at the very least, the Sixers had four of the five best players in that series. And you mentioned the four all-stars. And I, I think you're right. People don't think of Andrew Tony as how good he was. And again, in reading this book, it brought it back for that brief period of time before the injury started to get to him. And then I, I think he had some uh, attitude issues, too, towards the team. 
he was just unbelievable. He would, they would actually look to him to score sometimes when they needed a basket, which you would find, you know, kind of surprising when you had Julius Irving and Moses Malone, but Tony would just, he would just take over and score. Uh, one of the quotes I read about him was uh, Michael Cooper said the toughest guy he guarded in the NBA was Larry Bird and Andrew Tony was the second toughest. So, And to, to set the trend at, at the end of this Knicks Bucks or Knicks Sixers series, QB uh, Brown, the Knicks coach says, quote, they can't play. They can't pay Moses enough for what he's doing for the Sixers. So, Beginning a trend of Hall of Fame coaches who have just lost to the Sixer team singing the praises of Moses Malone, and they go into the Eastern Conference Finals not against the Celtics. They go against the Milwaukee Bucks, to everybody's surprise. The Bucks had uh, beaten the Celtics in 83 in the first round of the 83, I believe. Had it been a sweep, I think it had been a sweep the round before. Four, four, game, four game series, Andrew's giving me the four fingers here. So a very, very surprising loss by the Celtics to a Bucks team. That's another one of those teams that kind of gets lost to history a little bit. You don't, you don't think of them as having been a good team in the 80s, but for those few years with Don Nelson, led by a future Hall of Famer at center and Bob Lanier, uh, they were able to get past the Celtics and go to the Eastern Conference Finals. They I, I, they were really good teams. Sidney Moncrief, Junior Bridgman, they were the the Bucks were a really good team. And actually if you look at um if you look at this series and I mean to start off they're the only team that gets a game from the Sixers in these NBA playoffs. Uh, it's in game 4 when the Sixers are up 3 to nothing, but game 1 actually goes into overtime and it's a uh Two-point win for the Sixers. Mo Cheeks is actually the high scorer in this game with 26 points as the uh, Sixers. It looks like the um, Bucks actually were in the hole early in the game, came back, forced it to overtime, but the Sixers win. Then even game two is only a six-point win uh, for the Sixers before the series goes to Milwaukee. They get up three games to nothing, and then on May 15th of 83, uh, the Sixers are dealt the only loss in the playoffs that they would suffer all year. 100 to 94, uh, the Bucks win and send the series back to Philadelphia. But the Sixers wrap it up on the 18th, 115, 103. You mentioned Andrew Tony again in this game. Andrew Tony goes for 30. He's the leading scorer as the Sixers wrap it up at the spectrum. Um, so Moses's prediction has not come true, but it's as close as you really could could have asked for. I when the Bucks go down 3-0, they show an interview with Bob Lanier and they ask him, they said, Bob, are you intimidated by the fact by the um the record of teams that are trying to come back from 3-0 and win a series? And the, Bob Lanier says, Well, has there, any team ever done it? And they say no. And he says, oh, OK. And that's sort of the end of that. <laughs> but and it's funny because we're like I said, we're recording this the night after the the Celtics uh, attempted to do that and made it all the way to a game seven and were unsuccessful against Miami uh, going uh, going out of game seven after or I'm sorry, out of game five, I should say, after the Bucks lose. 
Don Nelson says that this is the best team he's seen in 10 years. So like Hubie Brown, he walks away very impressed with Moses and with the Sixers. And I want to take a little bit of a digression here because we we like to do that on the Hello Old Sports podcast. And I I mentioned that I looked at some old uh, issues of the sporting news in preparation here. Um, And just before the playoffs started in late April, there was uh, an article in the sporting news talking about how the 76ers Celtics rivalry was the best rivalry in all of sports. And they listed the top 10 and here are what they considered to be the top 10 rivalries in sports in April of 1983. Number one, 76ers Celtics. Number two, Redskins Cowboys. Number three, Oklahoma, Texas. Number four, Ohio State, Michigan. Number five, Red Sox, Yankees. Number six, Nordiques, Canadians. <laughs> Number seven, USC, UCLA. And I think they're sort of uh, talking both uh, both basketball and, and football here. Number eight, Brown Steelers. Number nine as Giants Dodgers. And number 10, Andrew, Army Navy. Hmm. And they listen. Most of those still hold up. Obviously, the Canadians and the Nordiques don't. (laughs) (laughs) It's tough when one of the teams doesn't exist anymore. And then they list a rivalry of the future. And I really don't think this came true. They list Penn State versus Pitt. As a rivalry of the future. I don't know which sport they're even talking about. Well, hang on. Hang on. They didn't say when. There's still time. That's right. (laughs) They didn't say when in the future. Both those schools still exist and are playing sports 40 years later. So the they go into the NBA finals third time in four years against the Lakers, the defending champion Lakers, team that did beaten them in the NBA finals the year before, but this is a very banged up Laker team. James Worthy had broken his leg. The rookie James Worthy, who they drafted out of North Carolina had broken his leg uh, in early April in one of the last regular season games against the, um, for the Lakers before the finals started Uh, Norm Nixon and Bob McAdoo both uh, are banged up or end up being banged up in the the series and I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. So this is not necessarily the exact same team that the um that the that the it's not the same team for Philly and it's really not the same team that the Lakers had brought into the finals the year before. And also as if he needed more motivation, Moses Malone has a little bit of a grudge against Pat Riley because in the 82 All-Star game, so the season before He's playing for the Western Conference as one of the centers on the team coached by Pat Riley and the, uh, you know, one of the other centers, obviously, is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And despite how well he's playing both in the game and in the season, Riley benches Moses Malone down the stretch for Kareem at center. And that just makes Moses want to get some revenge on Riley, Kareem and the Lakers even more so. Maybe they didn't need the motivation as the clearly better team, but they go in with that little bit of extra. Moses, at least, goes in with that little bit of extra motivation against the Lakers. 
Yeah, and this series is honestly more of the same. Um, the Sixers win the first two in Philly, uh, 113, 107, and then 103 to 93. Uh, Moses, that first game, 27 and 18, uh, 24 and 12 in game two. Then the series moves out west. And, you know, I guess the point before we go even further, we, we've kind of glossed it over, but, you know, Moses is obviously the the difference in the team and, you know, was the reigning MVP and would be the MVP this year. But, you know, there was always the sense at this point that the clock was ticking on Julia serving a little bit at this point. And he'd had great years, both in the ABA and the NBA, but he'd been over three in the finals so far with the Sixers in the NBA where, you know, it really, when you're talking championships, you're talking NBA championships, and this was sort of, well, if he doesn't do it this year, this is probably the last best shot. And dad, wouldn't you say that by this point, he's, he's not nearly the player. He wasn't like, as far as just the high flying and the acrobatics, he's still a great player, but he's not doing some of that crazy stuff that he'd done in his ABA days. And even in his early Philly days. Yeah, no, he, he wasn't, he was nothing like he was when he was in the ABA and, and I know I've told you guys this in the past when he was in the ABA, I would watch some of the Nets games on TV. He, he was, he was Michael Jordan at Jordan's best. And, but the thing was, is that he was the first to be like that. I mean, they talk about Elgin Baylor and Oscar Robertson and, you know, I guess Baylor would be the, the closest uh, comparison to what he did, but I mean, Julia serving and, I don't know, maybe it was the ball, maybe it was the Afros, but it was just, you know, they were just, uh, he was unbelievable. But 77, 80, he was still really, really good. But by 83, I think it was good that he could defer to Moses and they could defer to Tony. And like I say, I I was surprised in reading what, what they said about Tony. There were times Tony would try and get him out of the post or get him out of his way so Tony could do what he wanted to do, which, you know, again, I think at that point he was a second year player and he was telling Dr. J to get out of his way. But it's, it, I don't think Dr. J pushed back. I don't think he had a problem with it. I think he really appreciated the fact he didn't have to carry the load all by himself anymore. And I'm sure you Tony, get- Tony's actually the second leading scorer for the uh, the Sixers in this series. He averages 22, where Irving is at 19. And, and I had for, I had forgotten how just Tony was. It was funny because you were mentioning their rivalry with the, uh, the Celtics. Do you know what they called him when he they called him the Boston Strangler? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because who who did he get in a fight with? I think he got in a fight with uh, ML Carr. Uh-huh, that sounds right. But they all tried to defend him. It was ML Carr. They brought in Quinn Buckner the one year. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter. And you guys remember that this was obviously after the championship. That's why they brought Dennis Johnson to the Celtics was to defend Tony. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. You know, and again, I don't know how much of that is just, you know, hype, but... They say that that was one of the main reasons they went and got Dennis Johnson because they needed somebody that could defend Tony. Speaking of the Celtics uh, Sixers rivalry and of guys choking each other, there's that famous picture of Larry Bird and Dr. J with their hands around each other's necks uh, during a fight in a game. And uh, 
the when when I my wife and I when Allison and I were living in Boston and I taught at at BU for that one semester, one of my students had that picture taped to his laptop. So when he flipped <laughs> open when he flipped open his laptop, like the you know the back of his laptop was the picture of Dr. J and Larry Bird choking each other. And keep in mind that this is like thirty seven years later. This isn't like something that had just happened. So that that rivalry and the just the physicality and the meanness of it survived for for decades and decades, probably really in the mind of both fan bases. And if you think about it, that rivalry goes back, you know, 20 years, 15 years before this time frame to the Russell and Wilt. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was that was Havlicek stealing the ball. And that was that was Philly. That was yeah, that was definitely. You don't. <laughs> what was that, Andrew? Oh, I didn't say anything. I'm sorry. Oh, OK. Um, you you lit up for a second. Sorry. Yeah, that was that was Philly. They played the you know, and that was in '67 when they finally beat the Celtics, and they were chanting "Boston is dead" in the stands of the wherever the Sixers were playing in 1967. So, yeah, it really does. It really does go a long way. Uh, I I have a, I have a couple of just sort of random stories that I want to tell from the finals, but I don't know, Andrew. Did you have anything else on the finals? No, not really. I mean, they go to L.A., they win games three and four. Moses is obviously continues to be just the dominating force. And they, you know, it's weird to see the Showtime Lakers and Clips getting dominated like that, probably because most of what you see is either them winning or their epic series with the Celtics. It's almost like when you watch the 30 for 30 on the bad boy Pistons and you see like Michael Jordan leaving the court in defeat and it's just you don't especially being my age it's hard to process because you only ever see him triumphant you know what i mean so to see like the showtime lakers losing and losing badly and losing to somebody besides the celtics is actually pretty jarring yeah yeah this was a very interesting year given that the lakers got dominated and the celtics lost to the bucks and in the you know, in their first round of playoffs, it was not a normal year in 1980s basketball. At one point in game three, I believe it is Norm Nixon collides with Andrew Tony. Norm Nixon comes back to the sideline and Pat Riley says, do you need a rest? Norm Nixon replied, no, I need a casket. So not only did they run them off the floor, but they kind of beat the hell out of them in the in the process, the Sixers get in the wake of that collision. They put Clint, Clint Richardson in the game, who's sort of a he's a bench player. He's one of the bench contributors for the Sixers. Clint Richardson comes in, scores 10 points in the third quarter of that game three. They also get a really good game two from a guy by the name of Earl Curitan, who starts shooting skyhooks sort of mimicking Kareem and making them. And he's the hero of game two. So in addition to the dominant guys, Tony, Dr. J, Moses, they're getting some contributions for the, from these bench guys as well. Yeah, that's, and, and I think the guy who, you know, we talked about Tony kind of gets lost a little bit in the, in the shuffle. When you talk about the team, the guy who really doesn't get his his due is Bobby Jones. I mean, he was just so good. Ivoroni would start, and I mm-hmm. think he, I think he'd start the first quarter and he'd play a few minutes in the third quarter, and the rest of the time it was Bobby Jones. And Bobby Jones would defend 
whoever they put him up against, small forwards, power forwards. He was he was an all star caliber player, but how the hell can you get that kind of notific you know that notice when you got four all stars ahead of you? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the Lakers' uh, motto, the fans' motto before the series had been: the Sixers might have the physician, meaning Doctor J, but we have the magician, meaning magic. But that didn't work out for them. They still got still got swept in four. So uh, maybe we should talk a little bit before we close about maybe a little bit of the the legacy of this team. Well, they, they uh, <laughs> they're like I say to me it was it was long overdue. Um, we just and and again I didn't live there anymore, but I was still a, an avid Sixers fan. I mean, I had my T-shirts and I followed them as best I could. It's not as easy as it is now with with cable TV, but it was huge. I, I think I've told you guys for years, my brothers and I, and I, I think my dad was there. It's so long ago. We actually went to the garden to see them play that year. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they lost. I think the Knicks beat them a couple of times that year. I mean, they only had however many losses, but I think the Knicks beat them a couple of times. I'm going to see what I can find here. I think it was a game. It was late in the season. I think um, I asked my brother Scott about this a couple of weeks ago, and we're both like, "Yeah, I kind of remember it." And <laughs> Brian, I, <laughs> I think my dad went. I don't know how we got my dad to go, but Brian still would have been in high school. So yeah. So they they played the Knicks at the Garden the first game of the season. So I'm guessing that wouldn't have been that one. Wasn't that? Uh- Okay, and they beat the Knicks the first game of the year, and then late in the year they played at the Knicks. At the Knicks, at the, they played the Knicks on Tuesday, March twenty second, nineteen eighty three, and they lost eighty nine to seventy six. So I'm guessing that might have been the game. I think that was it. But again, it's you know it's so long ago I can't remember the specifics. But you guys probably remember me telling you. I went to a game that year. I got to, you know, I saw Moses. I remember you. I remember you talking about that. I remember you. I remember you wearing the shirt. I remember you talking about the team. I remember your brother, Scott, had the 83 Sixers uh, championship pennant uh, in his den at his yeah. uh, at his house. So and it, it really and we talked a little bit um, about the 80 season in a, a previous podcast episode a couple of years ago. But this was a good era in Philly sports. The Eagles had been to the Super Bowl. Flyers made the cup finals a couple times or at least once. Uh, the um, the Phillies had won in 80 in 80. They went back to the World Series in 83 later this year. Earlier so- in uh, earlier in 82, um, Rocky Balboa had won his heavyweight championship back from <laughs> Clubber Lang. <laughs> uh, that game you were at, by the way, Dad, Dr. J did not play. So he must have been uh, out with some kind of nagging injury. But he's, he does not show up on the box score. Reggie Johnson started in his place. Okay. And it was obviously late in the season. And they had gotten to the point they needed to be as far as the number one seed. Yeah. I, I don't remember a lot of it. I just, I, it's crazy. I just remember the four of us, as best as I can recall. Um, you know, we went down and we saw him and I, you know, Scott and I both were like avid fans and, you know, we were thrilled when they got Moses. And, you know, one thing you mentioned about the finals and this came out in the book I read, I think Kareem, not surprisingly, 
was there were sour grapes there. He felt that they would have won if they had been at the same strength that they were previously. And other people that are quoted in the book said, no, it's not the case. They would have won. The Sixers <laughs> mm-hmm. would have won. There, there was no question they were destined to win that year. Mm-hmm. Bill Simmons yeah. in his book of basketball says that they are the most overrated good uh, great team in NBA history. I mostly brought that up to watch Andrew roll his eyes. He's been making the rounds today with him with a face on last night, but yeah, because it wasn't a Celtics team that, you know, that's, that's why it's, you know, you're an overrated team. If you did anything when the Celtics were good, that, you know, that, that didn't involve the Celtics. So I'm sure that's why the Celtics got swept by the Bucks, so that they would, you know, so that they could give the Sixers a chance to win. I, I think we should go by what Hubie Brown and Don Nelson said about <laughs> yeah, that's a good that, point. rather than Bill Simmons. I mean, they, they the, both have a little more. Right. That, yeah. Bill Simmons, yeah, what? The, go ahead, Andrew. I was going to say the Celtics had their year in 86 when, yeah, they were, you know, it's funny in that period that the 86 Celtics and the 87 Lakers were also like the height of the height that, you know, get in all these discussions is the best teams of their, you know, specific time frame. So. Bill Simmons says that one of the reasons that he cites is that they sort of were kind of a one year wonder and that they actually lost in the final in the playoffs in the following year to the New Jersey Nets in five games. And Andrew, you'll appreciate this. He says it's the most pathetic title defense since the Iron Sheik lost the WWE title in five weeks. So (laughs) (laughs) actually, I'll tell you a story about that after the episode's over. But um, yeah, so I guess we could talk a little about sort of the the follow-up since we introduced it um 84 they do lose that first round series to the nets they're back in the eastern conference finals in 85 but they lose in five games and we should note that 85 is barkley's rookie year Mm -hmm. they have a moses dr j barkley front line for i want to say two seasons yeah because i think after the 86 season is when they trade Moses, because the article I have here talks about how Moses Malone was at the center, him coming to the Sixers and him leaving the Sixers were two of the more lopsided trades in uh, Sixers franchise history, one from a positive standpoint, one from a uh, negative standpoint. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Moses was not there Julius's last year, which was 86, 87. He wasn't. He was gone. And the, the reason Moses and Charles both needed their games were both low post games. So what were you going to do with two of them down there? They were getting in each other's way. That was, uh, that was a huge problem. Yeah. I'm trying to look up the exact terms of the deal. Um, Sixers dealt Malone along with Terry Catledge and two round first pit, two first round picks to the Washington bullets in return. They got Jeff Ruland and Cliff Robinson, who's not the Clifford Robinson from the Blazers a few years later. So even if you think trading Moses, they certainly should have gotten more than what they did get for him. Yeah, they must have they must have really wanted Jeff Ruland. Ruland was did damage goods. I mean, they that was the thing is supposedly they checked him out, but he had horrible knees. I, I don't remember how many games he played, but he didn't play a lot of games. He was he was really in bad shape. 
And the only thing, just to, the, go ahead. Sorry. The only thing I remember about him was when he was the coach at Iona. He would get in, interviewed on Mike and the Mad Dog every year at March Madness. Other than that, I don't don't can't say I remember much about his playing career. The best was when he and Ricky Mahorn were teamed together, and that was where they were the Bruise Brothers. So Johnny Most called them McFilthy and McNasty. Yeah, they were they were they were bad. Yeah, Ruland was like he was he just was too big for his to play basketball. It was just too much on his knees. And then in 86, they lose to the Bucks in the second round. 87, they lose to the Bucks in the first round. And by 88, they're uh, out of the playoffs. Dr. J's gone. And it's uh, pretty much over for the Sixers. And, you know, the couple of playoff appearances with Barkley, but nothing serious. And that's, uh, you know, kind of the end of it. Yep. It, end, yep. it ended uh, pretty ingloriously. But what Bill Simmons isn't talking about is the years leading up to 83. I mean, they were there every yeah. year. Mm-hmm. They just didn't win. But I mean, it's better than a team that didn't even get that far. Yeah, no, that's in, absolutely right. In 80, 81 and 82, they lost to the team that ultimately won the championship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A couple of and them I guess, were heart, heartbreaking. Did the, bullets, Back, did the bullets win in 78, Dan? Yes, the Bullets won in 78. So they lost. So in 77, 78, 80, 81, and 82, they lost to the eventual champions. Five years out of six. Yeah. So, again, that's not to say they were the second best team every one of those years. Do you know who they lost to in 79 in the Eastern Conference playoffs? No. I can look. Dan Antonio. That's true. That's that's kind of a weird, uh, a weird aside, but, um, yeah, no, they were a team that was clearly now would they have won if they didn't get Moses? They probably wouldn't have won without Moses. We think, right? No, no, they wouldn't have. He, he was just, he totally, because again, he replaced who Daryl Dawkins and Caldwell Jones. And I mean, Dawkins had his limitations. I mean, he was, he could be really good or he could be horrible. And, uh, Caldwell was, you know, he was a good serviceable player, but he wasn't even close to Moses Malone's uh, talent level. And one other thing I just want to throw in that after they won the championship and they came back to Philly, three or four of them went to Caldwell Jones's house to celebrate with him. Oh, really? Yes. And I think Billy Cunningham wanted to give him a ring. He was that, you know, he was just such a part of that team for those number of years leading up to it. Mm-hmm. And he was the. They didn't want to trade him, but he, you couldn't get Moses Malone unless you gave him somebody, and it was Caldwell Jones. Yeah, it feels like a lot of times you always feel bad on those those teams that finally win a championship because there's always like that one guy who was with them all the way up through the season before, or even somebody who gets traded during the season. And another example kind of escapes me at the moment, but you feel like there were always those guys who it's like, they were part of it. They were part of it. They were part of it. And then at the last minute they got, they got traded away. So, and it's, it's one thing when they leave and they, you know, they sign somewhere else or something, cause at least that's their choice. But when, when they're the guy who gets traded, it's, it's a little different. So, uh, and dad, you kind of, you stayed with them for a while after 83, right? You stayed a fan for at least decent chunk of the eighties. I remember you being a fan in the late eighties. Yeah, I mean, I was a fan of pro basketball. It was I, I really, really got into basketball when I was 12 years old. I started playing all the time, you know, not organized, but just playing basketball. And I was, you know, so I started following the Sixers up until that point. I was 
probably a typical kid. I mean, I was a baseball fan, so it was the Phillies. And I wasn't really into professional football till later. Um, but basketball was it for a long, long time. And then, you know, again, not to sound like, a, you know, like too much of an old man, but as the game changed and the teams like, like the, the Trailblazers, the Sixers, when they were really good, the Celtics, the Lakers, you know, it, it, the basketball just became a different kind of game. And that's when I kind of started to drift away from it. And mm-hmm. not, to be honest with you, it became more interested in college basketball. Um, but you know, I, I, I stayed with the Sixers for a while. I was a big Charles Barkley fan and, uh, you know, and then obviously he, he wanted out. So they traded him to the, uh, to the Suns. or was he a free agent? Do, do you guys know? No, Did that was trade? a, tra- that was a trade. Cause I know, I remember Jeff Hornacek went back to the Sixers, a couple other guys too, but that was, that was a trade. That's right. Yeah. Hornacek. Yeah. I- I found an article on the Jones stuff that I just wanted to sort of close the loop on. I guess something we didn't talk about. Moses was not happy because they said when he arrived in Philadelphia and he found out that Caldwell Jones had been one of the guys traded for him, he was pissed. And he said, one of the main reasons I came here was to play with Caldwell. Um, And then the, uh, the story, it says um, after the Sixers flew back from Los Angeles on June 1st, 1983, four of them, Cheeks, Andrew Tony, Earl Curitan, and Franklin Edwards, headed for the home Jones maintained in Southwest Philadelphia. Some of the detail, you know, in some versions of the story, they broke open cans of beer, and some it was a bottle of champagne. What is certain is that they all raised a toast. Um, they just all wanted to make it right with him as he had always made it with them. So that's a very nice story that I honestly wasn't familiar with before we did this episode. Yeah, and I wasn't until I read it in the book. And then also it said in the book that Billy Cunningham wanted to give him a ring. And uh, he, mm-hmm. he, he didn't want one. He said no. But, you know, I think he was happy for them. The same thing I read about Lionel Hollins because he'd been on the team a few years. He was thrilled for them when they won and there wasn't any bitterness. But he said it was easier for him to take because he had won a ring in 77 when they beat them. <laughs> so because uh, he was on the Blazers that year. And he Caldwell Jones ends up playing for. Ever. He's on the he plays until 1990. He's almost 40 years of age. He plays on the Bulls. He's, he's a teammate of Jordan's in Jordan's rookie year. And then he's he's in Portland for a while. He closes out with San Antonio. His nickname is Pops, which I guess makes sense when you play to your 40. But that's another guy who really just hangs around forever. Yeah. Yeah. And I forgot that, Andrew, what you said about him and uh, how Moses wanted to play with him, how mm. he really liked him. So so you know, just kind of, and again, this was 15 years ago that I was there now. And obviously, like I said, that Philadelphia is a football town. There's no doubt the Eagles first, foremost, forever. The Phillies being, you know, the team that's been there and historically losers and the Flyers have a certain, you know, very diehard fan base that's in a lot of ways like the Eagles. But this, you know, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but if you think about the Philadelphia sports teams, the Eagles won that championship a few years ago. They hadn't won one since 1960. The Phillies won in 2008 and 1980. And that's it. The Flyers won back-to-back championships in the seventies. There's not a, I think the Philadelphia A's still have the most championships in the city of Philadelphia and they haven't played there in seven years. (laughs) I Um, think you're right. Yeah. There's not a lot 
they're not in a position to really be turning their nose up at championships. And I think this team for 25 years was the last champion. So even among people who maybe are bigger football fans or bigger baseball fans or even bigger hockey fans, you'd hear people talk about the 85 Villanova team too, even though, even if they had no particular tie to Villanova, cause it was like, well, that was the last one we had, but the Sixers team, not just winning, but, and we've, I've talked about this, like, you have a special place in your heart for the teams that kind of came out of nowhere or scrapped by. That's why I always talk about the 07 giants, but then there's something to be said for a team that just beat the crap out of people that was dominant from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. If you were a fan of them where it was kind of just a year long victory lap, but not that that was, you know, always a foregone conclusion they would win, but there was always at least a, a thought throughout the year of like, yes, this is the best team in the league and they're the favorites to win a championship. And then when they do, it's hard to not put that team on a separate pedestal because you know, it wasn't a fluke and they really were that good. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. That's true. That's true. I, I, I know that I, when I see on TV, I mean, I think Dr. J is still revered in the city all these years later. I know he shows up at things. Um, they'll they'll show them at basketball games. I think they show them at, you know, the Eagles games sometimes, the playoffs or the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. They show him there. He's uh, I don't think he still lives in Philly, but uh, he's still he's still really highly thought of there. Yeah, I feel like it's like him and Schmidt and, you know, a couple other guys that are kind of like those Philly Philly icons of, of guys that have, you know, that are still living or that, you know, have not been dead, you know, for, for 50, 60 years. It, those are kind Bobby of Bobby Clark that, with the, that's Bobby another Clark. one. Yeah. Another flyers. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you brought yeah, up a good point. How many championships does the city have? You know, it's not like Boston where <laughs> between the Celtics and the, mm-hmm. and the Patriots, they win all the time. So it, it, these guys, it really means a lot to the fan base and they're avid sports fans. You know, that Ange. they're, uh, they're really avid fans down there. They just haven't had a lot of champions to cheer for. Yeah. If the Phillies have the two. And when you consider they've been around since 1883, the Eagles have four, but only, you know, one of them is in the Super Bowl era. Sixers, the two 67 and 83. And then the flyers won back to back in 74, 75. So yeah, the A's have the most championships in the city's history, and there's really nobody alive who remembers that, if we're being, you know, honest. So yep. it's, you know, if, even if you're 60, 70 years old in Philadelphia, you got seven, eight championships. So you're going to, you really ought to hold every single one of them in very special regard. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to our dad, Glenn, for uh, for joining us as our special guest and a fan of the team in question and this will sort of complete or begin depending on which order these post our uh, two-part series of anniversaries of great nba teams whose franchises have never yet won another championship and did you have anything to add well i was gonna say too we didn't really talk about it in 82 but we've the year before the 73 knicks and the 82 sixers the only teams that won game sevens in the boston garden is that right yep and then it's happened three times now since then (laughs) Oh, including once at the new stadium at the new arena. Jeez. All right. Well, this was a lot of fun, dad. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. No, our pleasure. Our pleasure. Well, thank you all for listening as always. And until next time, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman.
Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.